0: Good evening, everyone. Am I on? Yes. Good. Great. Good evening and welcome to our continuing study, New Testament, a redemptive history. And tonight our topic is the Holy Spirit is poured out. You can't hear me? The speaker's not on over there? You hear it over here? Check and see. Okay. All right, they're going to try to troubleshoot the sound over here. Can you guys hear me okay? Relatively okay? All right? Good. Okay. I'll try to project and speak loudly. When my wife and I woke up on the morning of April 7th, 1979, we were not Christians. When we went to bed that night, we were Christians. I was in the Air Force, uh, Randolph Air Force Base, just outside San Antonio, Texas. I was about two months away from being um, honorably discharged uh, after having a four-year enlistment that most people would call fairly phenomenal. Uh, I was widely recognized for a number of contributions that I did. Uh, I received uh, a lot of accolades, a lot of recognition, including two commendation medals, a meritorious service medal. I thought it was pretty hot stuff at the age of 25. Uh, Barbara was working as a teller at a bank just outside the base in Universal City, Texas, again, which is a suburb of San Antonio. She had become friends with another teller, Kay Campbell. And Kay and her husband, Larry, had a home Bible study. And for several months, they had been inviting, at least Kay had been inviting Barbara to get me, both of us, to kind of start attending this Bible study, and we found pretty much every excuse you could find to not go to the Bible study, and we were quite successful for a number of months. And uh, one of the other ladies at the bank was, uh, was leaving to go back home to um, Oklahoma, and they were having a going-away party for her, and we were invited to the going-away party, so we thought, well, we like parties, so we'll go. And when we got there, we found out that just about everybody at the going away party was part of the Bible study. And not only that, these people were unlike any people we had ever come across in our lives. Barbara was raised Roman Catholic. I was, as my mother would say sometimes, drug up Presbyterian. And what she meant by that was we only went to church occasionally. Uh, And we were what you might refer to as CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only, uh, and attending Presbyterian Church just over here on Sharon Road. Uh, And um, so uh, we we, uh, found out that these folks are really, really cool, cool folks. And so we decided they're so cool, we'll hang around with them. We started attending the Bible study in January of that year, 1979. And we enjoyed what we were listening to, and we kind of went along, and we contributed as best we could, you know, thinking that we knew, you know, kind of, you knew the story. Uh, and on April 7th, uh, we and the Campbells had decided that we would go to uh, go out to dinner uh, at a Chinese restaurant. Kay and Larry had never been to a Chinese restaurant, which was surprising because Larry was an Air Force veteran, and at the time was flying for Braniff International. He was a pilot. And so we had a lovely dinner at the Chinese restaurant and then went back to the Campbell's small efficiency apartment uh, uh, just outside uh, the Air Force base. And uh, of course, the topic of the day, uh, whenever we got together was religious stuff, stuff about Jesus. Uh, And so we were talking uh, about religious things. And as uh, Larry had a way of doing, he pulled out the Bible and he held it in his hand. And whenever he did that, it was just amazing what came out. It, he he was just it was, it was just I was like hanging on every word, and I can't remember what scripture he was talking about or exactly what you know he was saying. And I went, Hell up my hand, Larry," I said, "just just stop." I said, "For the first time in my life, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God." But I've got an emptiness. I've got a hole right here. I tapped myself right here. And Barbara's sitting next to me on the couch, and she said, me too. He said, well, I think I know what you need. (laughs) And he shared four scriptures with us, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, John 1.12, and and Revelation 3.20. And he explained a little bit about each one as he was going through those. And then at the end of kind of discussing those, uh, we bowed our heads. And did a sinner's prayer. And invited Jesus into our lives. And at that moment, Kay got up and left the apartment. Also at that moment, the presence of Satan was right here. I, 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 could, I could almost see him. And as soon as we accepted Christ he turned and vanished, as did Kay. She, she vanished. She left the apartment. Uh, and a few months later, Kay came back in with two other couples in tow, two couples who were part of the Bible study. And they had been prepped by Kay and Larry, who said, we're going out to dinner with the Carmichael's, and we think tonight's the night. So we want you to pray for them. The other two couples were in an apartment next door to Kay and Larry's praying for us. And as Barbara and I sat there with tears streaming in our cheeks and the weight of the world lifted off our shoulders, we never looked back. Our lives changed forever. Now I share that with you tonight for two reasons. One, as a testimony to the power of prayer. I mean, it's obvious on his face, you can see that. Uh, And the other goes to what our topic is tonight, and that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All of what happened that night was a culmination of the Holy Spirit's work in my life and Barbara's life since the day we were born. So what I would like for you to do at this point is have your first table discussion. And this is what it is. Share a time when you know or believe that the Holy Spirit was at work in your life. Now, I'm not going to have time for everybody to share at the tables, but at least hopefully one or two folks can share at each table about this. A time when you know or you believe that the Holy Spirit was at work in your life. It doesn't have to be when you came to Christ. It could be something else where you just knew the Holy Spirit was at work in your life. So take a few minutes to do that, and then we'll come back, and maybe we'll be able to hear from one or two of you. I hate to interrupt, because I know there's some great stories being shared, but we want to give a few minutes to hopefully hear from at least one or two of you uh, the Reader's Digest version of what you just shared uh, at your table. If anybody would like to volunteer to do that, I think the group would be blessed. Where are the microphones, by the way? What tables have microphones? I saw there's one over there, and there's one. One over there? Or is there just one microphone? Oh, okay. Oh, there it is. Okay. All right. Okay. Anybody want to share? No requirement. Just opening the floor. Okay. Then we shall move on. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are gathered together this evening to hear about, learn about, talk about your Holy Spirit. Probably one of the most challenging topics to talk about on a number of levels. We pray that your grace and your very spirit, as we are talking about him, will be present here tonight to open our hearts and our ears to things that are really in many ways beyond our understanding, but there's so much that you have revealed to us that we want to make an attempt at least to try to plumb some of the depths of the mystery of this third person of the Trinity. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your presence and your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So we have two bottom lines tonight, and they should be there on the sheet on your tables. One is this so complete is the union of the members of the Trinity that the coming of the Holy Spirit is the coming of Jesus Himself. And the other is this through the Holy Spirit, we have communion with Jesus and with the Father, and this communion is direct and immediate. Our subtopics for this evening are the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's influence in Jesus' life. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in fire. The Holy Spirit continues the acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and common grace. Each of these deserve an evening of its own. <laughs> and if you were here two weeks ago when I inundated you with a lot of information, I will do so again this evening. Uh, So we have a lot to cover, but have no fear. The notes will be made available to you as they were last time. But please take notes. I encourage you to do that for the things that you hear that are particularly important to you. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is one of dozens of doctrines in Christianity. Um, Among some of the other high-level doctrines that you may be familiar with are the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of man the doctrine of the church, and the doctrine of the Word of God. And again, there are dozens and dozens more. A doctrine is simply a settled teaching within a system of belief that is presented for acceptance. Most of the major doctrines of the Christian church were discussed, debated, uh, researched in Scripture and settled upon more than 1,500 years ago. So there are very new doctrines that have popped up over the years, but the main ones in Christianity are at least 1,500 years old. In his letter to Titus, Paul said, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So why is sound doctrine important? heresy's bad. <laughs> doctrine good, heresy bad, okay. <laughs> and, there, and there's a lot of it. Yes, there's a lot of it. Very simply, sound doctrine delivers us from the snare of false teaching, which can lead to heresy and, uh, and inhibit and threaten or even arrest our spiritual growth. Uh, <clears throat> so, to our topic tonight, Who or what is the Holy Spirit? Who would like to address that? Just anybody, anything. Who or what's the Holy Spirit? Okay, part of the triune God, part of the Trinity. Personality of God. Personality of God. What? God's nature? Okay, God's nature. Okay. Is what? said yeah okay all right, thank you all right. helper okay God's personal empowering for us thank you Kevin reading from, the book. reading from the book he's on his homework all right wow. good okay all right and do we find that we connect with the Holy Spirit as easily as we connect with God the Father and God the Son yeah do we Because they're one. No one has any difficulty in connecting with the Holy Spirit rather than God the Father, God the Son? Some Yeah, and uh, you're right on point. Um, By comparison to God the Father and God the Son, there are some of these ideas of being remote, uh, perhaps even impersonal, uh, vague in some way, mysterious in some way, and insubstantial not material, because spirit is basically not material. Uh, so we some people have that that difficulty. Most of us at some point probably have something similar like, like that that happened to us. Uh, <clears throat> the nature of the spirit, and the word spirit by the way, comes from uh, the uh, Hebrew word ruach, ruach, uh, and the Greek pneuma, pneuma. And both of these words, just their very sound kind of conveys the meaning of the word, uh, which is the expulsion of wind or breath. Ruach, nūma. Uh, the idea is air in motion. Uh, <clears throat> and those two, phrase, those two terms, ruach and numah along with the Latin spiritus, are derived from root words that mean breath or wind. Now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit, capital S, uh, what we're really expressing is the power and energy of the breath of life. The Old Testament term, ruach, specifically emphasizes the presence of energy and activity rather than immateriality. That's what's in view. In Micah 3.8, we read, but as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. Genesis 1:2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim in the Hebrew, was hovering over the face of the waters. When applied to God, the emphasis of Ruach is His overwhelming energy, His overwhelming energy. But even more importantly, it describes God extending himself into and in active engagement with the creation that he has made in a personal way. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Holy Spirit, which, by the way, I relied on heavily in preparation for tonight's uh, lesson, uh, says this. The activity of a divine ruach is precisely that of extending God's presence into creation in such a way as to order and complete what has been planned in the mind of God. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, uh, and probably most things of a religious nature, Christianity in particular, uh, all analogies kind of break down at some point. There's really no perfect analogy when you want to describe God. There's no perfect analogy in trying to describe you know, Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, and similarly, there's no real you know, 100% great analogy for the Holy Spirit. But one analogy that comes close is electricity. Uh, without the energy of electricity flowing through them, all appliances and devices uh, and machines made to run on electricity Would not have the power to function. So similarly, without the energy of the Holy Spirit in creation, creation couldn't function. It's that that simple. As I mentioned earlier, as we uh, some of you mentioned uh, in in talking about what who is the Holy Spirit, uh, most of us know that He is the third person of the Trinity, and as the third person of the Trinity, along with God the Father and God the Son. He is of the same nature and the same substance as those two other persons of the Trinity. Theologically, we say they are of the same essence and are consubstantial with one another. Again, simply meaning that they are of the same nature and of the same substance. The Holy Spirit possesses personhood just as God the Father and God the Son possess uh, personhood. The Holy Spirit is both God's Spirit and Jesus' Spirit. We see this throughout Scripture because we will read Old Testament, New Testament, uh, either the Spirit of God, God's Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, Christ's Spirit, and, of course, the Holy Spirit. And so these are all indicative uh, that uh, they are triune and uh, part of the Holy Trinity, one God. Uh, As we mentioned, they are also, uh, the Holy Spirit is also uh, more energy than something that is immaterial uh, and something just for us to keep in mind, and also that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and that's just how we see uh, it it represented in Scripture. For those of you who love church history, we're going to give a little short history lesson here. The Nicene Creed, which was developed by the church at the first ecumenical council of the church in 325 A.D., had this to say about the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. Now, again, for those of you who like church history, familiar with church history, you're probably aware that prior to the year 1054 A.D., there was one universal Christian church. After 1054, we have the Eastern Church and the Western Church. The Eastern Church became headquartered in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. The Western Church became headquartered in Rome and developed into the Roman Catholic Church. In the East, we have the Eastern Orthodox Church. The split in 1054 uh, came about through a variety of different disagreements on some theological issues, one of the most important of which was, from whom does the Holy Spirit proceed within the Trinity? Is it the Father and the Son, or just the Father? The Western Church, which we are descendants of and part of, settled on that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, as we saw here in the Nicene Creed. The Eastern Orthodox Church holds that only through proceeding from the uh, that the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father, not the Father and Son. And that remains a bone of contention between East and West to this day. Okay. So for those of you who love church history, there you go. A little little side trip for you. But let's now talk about the Holy Spirit's role in specifically in redemptive history, beginning with the Old Testament. In our study of the Old Testament uh, last uh, last year and earlier this year, uh, can anybody tell us what was the general go- type of government that we see at place among the Hebrews in the Old Testament? What type of government do we see? We do see a monarchy, uh, but it's subservient to the overarching form of government—a theocracy. theocracy. Thank you, Kevin. It is a theocracy that's at work almost exclusively throughout the Old Testament. And the theocracy flows from God's covenants that he made with his people. So God's covenant people live under the immediate direction and administration of God in a theocracy, which means governed by God. That's what a theocracy is. God is the governing authority in a theocracy. Okay. And what we see in this theocracy at work is probably the most significant role the Holy Spirit plays during this period, and that is endowing people uh, to fulfill certain official functions or certain offices. We see this with the judges. We see it with the kings, specifically Saul and King David. But we also see this uh, endowing of people among those who built the tabernacle, and also those who built uh, Solomon's temple. We also see in the Old Testament that when an individual who had this endowment of the Holy Spirit, for whatever reason, became unsuitable for God's purposes, God would remove his spirit from that individual. Can anybody cite any examples? Saul, that's, the, that's kind of the big one. Uh, and Saul's, the, uh, the spirit was withdrawn from Saul because why? He made a sacrifice he wasn't supposed to. Say it again. He made a sacrifice so he wasn't supposed okay, he made a sacrifice to. when he wasn't supposed to. Okay. Uh, what else? It's more specific. He didn't kill, the king. He didn't kill which king? The, of the Amalekites. Uh, he, was, uh, uh, he was directed by God to slay all the Amalekites. All of them, women, children, everybody, and he didn't. And so uh, the spirit was um, the spirit departed Saul because he failed to he disobeyed God's specific instructions. This the notion that the Holy Spirit could be withdrawn from people was a concern on David's mind, King David's mind, uh, which he reflected in Psalm fifty one eleven when he wrote, "Do not cast from me your presence." or take your Holy Spirit from me. See, he knew that was a possibility, and he and it concerned him. So the Spirit's functional work in the Old Testament of occasionally endowing people at specific times for specific purposes contrasts with the Spirit's work in the New Testament, where he indwells permanently, those who follow Jesus Christ, believers in Christ. So we had this occasional endowment in the Old Testament and the permanent indwelling of the Spirit in the New Testament. And so in addition to that, let's look at uh, these four roles that the Holy Spirit uh, is involved in in the New Testament uh, era. In general, it may be said that the special task of the Holy Spirit is to bring things to completion by acting immediately upon and in God's people. That's what we see at work in the New Testament and beyond. The work of the Spirit follows the work of the Son, just as the work of the Son follows the work of the Father. In His superintending or overseeing the incarnation, the Holy Spirit created a human body in which the Son of God could dwell making it possible for Jesus the Messiah to become the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Uh, in his uh, inspiring scripture, we see the Holy Spirit is revealed to, uh, reveals to humanity God's special revelation, God's special revelation. That's really what we we talked about throughout the Old Testament course and what we're talking about in the New Testament course. Everything that we see in the Bible uh, is God's special revelation of the story of redemption culminating in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. In birthing and growing the church, the Holy Spirit not only gave birth to the church, but indwells it to give it life and grows it by regeneration, regenerating individuals, as I uh, shared what happened to me and my wife on April 7, 1979. It happened to all of you at some point in time. So it grows, he grows the church through regeneration and sanctification, those of us uh, who are to grow into the image of Christ over time of this uh, birthing and growing, uh, Ferguson says, "...the Spirit who hovered over the waters on the first day of creation also hovered over the Virgin Mary in the conception of the head of the new creation, Jesus." Now, in the present day, the same Spirit hovers over men and women to bring new birth to them from above. So again, one of our bottom lines for this evening, "...through the Holy Spirit, we have communion with Jesus and with the Father," And this communion is direct and immediate. And in his role as involving uh, teaching and guiding the church, the Holy Spirit not only testifies that Jesus is the Messiah, but also leads the church in all truth, uh, and keeps the church from error, and also prepares the church for her final destiny. So, in just kind of wrapping up our brief discussion here on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Here are several others of other actions of the Spirit and works of the Spirit. We're not going to spend time looking at all of these this evening. I have the scripture references there for you to look up at your own leisure. Once you get the notes or if you're taking a picture, you can look it up whenever you can. But we see the Holy Spirit involved in searching, hearing, speaking, apportioning spiritual gifts, teaching, interceding, and witnessing, all those things. So I'm going to pause there. Any questions at a very high level about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that we've covered? Okay. All right. Mini-lecture number one. Done. All right. Uh, yes, sir. Yes. When you're interacting with, with the Godhead, you're interacting with the Holy Spirit, you're interacting with God the Father, you're interacting with God the Son. All at once. All the same. Yes, sir. Wouldn't uh, healing be one of those the Holy Spirit? Yes. This is not an exhaustive list. Uh it, this is not an exhaustive list. There are others, so these are just some of the ones that I, I pulled up. But yes, healing would also be included in this. Yes, thank you. Okay. Any others? Okay. All right. Let's look at the Holy Spirit's influence in Jesus' life. We see the Spirit's influence unfolding in Jesus' life in three stages. Stage one: His conception, birth, and growth. Stage two: His baptism temptations, and his ministry, and stage three, his death, resurrection, and ascension. It, regarding his conception, we read in Luke 1.35 this, And the angel answered her, being Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. By coming upon Mary, by overshadowing Mary, the Spirit had one specific purpose in mind, and that was to birth the Son of God in human form. To birth the Son of God in human form. Emmanuel, God with us. It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit could the divine Son of God assume human nature to be born in the likeness of sinful man, but without sin. To be born in the likeness of sinful man, but without sin. Jesus' virgin conception and his coming in human form, but not having any sin, is essential to the story of redemption. It is essential to the story of redemption. Why? Why is the virgin birth and Jesus without sin essential to the story of redemption? the sacrificial lamb without spot or blemish, it had to be a perfect sacrifice to atone for sins. And that's what makes the virgin birth uh, and Jesus being without sin so essential to the story of redemption. In Luke 2.52, we read that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And here we see, without question, the wisdom was the work of the Holy Spirit, more than likely brought about by Jesus' daily and constant communion with God the Father. Ferguson says this about this time in Jesus' life. The ministry of the Spirit to Jesus during the hidden years was intimately related to his understanding of God's Word and his sensitivity and obedience to it as he came to recognize its significance for his own life. What was produced in him, Jesus, was fully realized human holiness, fully realized human holiness. A couple of weeks ago, we looked quite uh, a little bit, spent a little bit of time on talking about Jesus, uh, the role of the Spirit in Jesus' baptism, uh, as well as in his temptations. Uh, And so so today, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but we'll just do this kind of brief uh, summary or review the anointing of the Spirit of God at His baptism authorized Jesus to fulfill His role as God's chosen Messiah. In His temptations, Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, successfully resisted the ploys of the devil and beat back Satan on His own territory, paving the way for Jesus to carry out His mission as God's chosen people. God's, oh, I'm sorry, God's chosen Messiah. Luke four. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. This was immediately after his temptations. Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. In this brief uh, two verses, Luke tells us, That the whole of Jesus' messianic ministry uh, following his baptism was exercised in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a consequence, we see his preaching has authority, his words have exercising and liberating power, and his touch heals. Regarding his death, resurrection, and ascension, first. Regarding his death, we look at Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our our conscience from the dead to serve the living God? So it's through the spirit, Jesus was empowered to give himself over to death. Through the power of the spirit, he was able to do that. Regarding his resurrection, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. And Jesus, at his ascension, came into complete possession of the Holy Spirit, who had sustained him throughout his ministry. So we could say, this last point, as far as the death, resurrection, and ascension, that in the strength of the Spirit, Jesus died for our sins. By the power of the Spirit, He rose from the dead. In unity with the Spirit, He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. Okay. This brings us to group discussion number two. So here's your discussion assignment. Discuss what you would say to someone to help them understand the Holy Spirit's nature and the works he performs. All right, so the question was for you to or the assignment was for you to discuss what you would say to someone to help them understand the Holy Spirit's nature and the works he performs. So, what are some of the things that you talked about? What are some of the things that you would help say to somebody to help them understand the Holy Spirit? It's like electricity. That's a great analogy. More power. There we go. That's right. <laughs> it's great. Great. So our guidance comes from God. From Jesus. It's a response from God through Jesus, the Holy Spirit, um, in answer to prayer for specific for, for specific needs. Very good. What else? Okay. Here's a key point that you may want to jot down. We have to jot down. <laughs> It'll be in the notes. <laughs> Similar to how electrical energy. Is the power that works in appliances, devices, and machines, enabling them to function. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity whose divine energy is the power that sustains creation, draws people to Jesus, guides the life of Christians, helps them grow in the knowledge of God, and intercedes for them according to God's will. I'm sure that collectively you all came up with all of that, which is great. So there it is in summary form. Now, let's talk for a few minutes about Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit. I'd like for someone to read these two verses for us. And this first one, you don't have to read the parenthetical up there. It says Greek parakletos. You can just skip that as you read it. Uh, We're going to come back to that in a minute. So who would like to? So, If the microphone's at the table, somebody read who's got the microphone. And the second one also, if you would.
1: When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me.
0: Thank you. So the Greek word that we see here uh, in these uh, two verses, uh, this rendered Advocate, um, is parakletos or paraclete. Uh, It can also be rendered uh, and translated as helper or comforter. You will see that in some versions of the Bible. And if it's in that context, it means someone who comes alongside to strengthen another. Uh, When rendered as advocate, the concept here is um, someone who is a character witness, like you would have in a court of law. A character witness whose relationship to another person establishes his authority to speak on behalf of and or vouch for that other person. So the Holy Spirit is uniquely qualified to be Jesus' chief witness, the chief character witness for Jesus, uh, because he was Jesus' intimate companion throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. So the Holy Spirit came as the paracletos, the advocate, to continue advocating for the Messiah's redemptive work on earth not only during the time of the book of acts but even through the present age today. <clears throat> Ferguson says that the son of the that the son and the spirit share an identity of ministry that the Son and Spirit share an identity of ministry. He goes on to say that when Jesus announces his departure from the disciples, but assures them he will come to them, he is speaking neither about his resurrection appearance, nor about his anticipated final return, but about his coming in the gift of the Holy Spirit. So complete is the union of the members of the Trinity that the coming of the Holy Spirit is the coming of Jesus himself. That last sentence is another one of our bottom lines for this evening. That so complete is the union of the members of the Trinity that the coming of the Holy Spirit is the coming of Jesus himself. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes in fire. Okay. <clears throat> the promise of the Spirit Uh, Jesus had already given. We've seen that already in the two John uh, chapters, chapter 14, chapter 15. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit's going to come. In Acts 1.8, he renews this promise. Would somebody read Acts 1.8 for us, please?
1: You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth.
0: And then later on in Acts, we see the fulfillment of this promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit uh, occurring at three decisive points, each one coinciding with one of the geographical references in Acts 1:8: Jerusalem, Samaria and Caesarea representing the ends of the earth. In Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Jews. In Samaria, it is, he is poured out on the mixed-race Samaritans. And in Caesarea, the Holy Spirit is given to the Gentiles. In the Pentecost account, uh, <clears throat> what we're witnessing here, in the, kind of in the background, is the Hebrew festival of the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks was an annual celebration that commemorated the anniversary of the day 1,300 years earlier when, through Moses, God gave the law to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. The Feast of Weeks was one of the major festivals of the Jewish calendar. And Jews from all over the Roman Empire, if possible, would try to make it to Jerusalem for the major festivals, including the Feast of Weeks. So, therefore, there were all kinds of people from all over, say all kinds of people, uh, there were a lot of Jews from all over the Roman Empire who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks. The Greek translation of the festival is Pentecost. Does anybody know why? It's called Pentecost. Pentecost. Okay, here, 50 days days from what, William? Right. Uh, So the Feast of Weeks was celebrated 50 days from Passover. And 50 uh, is the Greek word, or uh, Pentecost is the Greek word for 50. So hence we get that. All right. So Acts 2 1 through 4. Would somebody please read this for us? When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Thank you. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I shared an excerpt from uh, my novel, The Thorn, Uh, to illustrate the intensity uh, of the Pharisees' contempt for the uh, new Jesus movement. Uh, And I want to share another excerpt from you uh, to try to capture a little bit more about this event that happened at Pentecost. The apostles had chosen today to meet with more than 100 of Jesus' followers. The group of 11 had once again become 12. Matthias had recently been selected by lot, to replace Judas Iscariot, the apostle who had betrayed Jesus. The gathered disciples shared a single desire, to serve the one who had transformed their lives. Unified in mind and spirit, all were fully devoted. Their meeting place was the spacious courtyard of a house located on an avenue leading to Herod's temple, the gleaming gold-embellished center of Jewish life in Jerusalem. The house was owned by Aaron Bar Uzei, a wealthy merchant who had become a follower of Jesus three years earlier while in the vicinity of Capernaum on business. The young Messiah's first public sermon that began, blessed are the poor in spirit, changed Aaron's life. Aaron led the way to a marble-paved courtyard. Canvas-covered walkways along each side were lined with hand-carved wooden doors leading to the home's interior. A three-tiered gleaming white water fountain graced the meeting space giving it the touch of elegance. Peter felt a tug on his sleeve. The apostle Thomas pulled him aside across the threshold and stopped a few steps back inside the house. Are you going to keep doing this? Doing what? Gathering these people together. Why shouldn't we gather together? Because. Because what? Because Thomas looked over his shoulder at his fellow believers, then turned to face Peter. Because the more time that passes, the greater will be their disappointment if nothing happens. It's already been ten days. Peter was well acquainted with his friend's skepticism. Their disappointment? Every time you gather us together, their expectation grows even more. Perhaps, but I wonder, Peter said, putting a hand on Thomas's shoulder. I wonder, is it possible it's not their disappointment that's bothering you, but your own? It was much easier, Thomas sighed, to believe when Jesus was with us, when we could see him. Now he's gone. The Master has always been faithful to his promises that he's made, hasn't he? Yes, and he always will be. So for now, let's follow Jesus' wise counsel and wait. Thomas nodded. The two apostles stepped back into the courtyard just as a sound like a violent storm struck the whole assembly. Descending from overhead, the sound rushed to fill a, fill the space as candlelight fills a dark room. The phenomenon, unaccompanied by any naturally occurring weather event, startled everyone. The intensity of the thunderous sound extended far beyond the walls of the courtyard, echoing through every broad avenue, crooked street, and narrow passageway in Jerusalem, confounding the whole city. An apparition like fire appeared above the stunned crowd, blazing tongue-shaped images, slender and pointed, Started chaotically in every direction before coming to rest one by one on the heads of the disciples as if in a predetermined order. Everyone in the courtyards was filled with the Spirit's power and began speaking in languages they had never before learned. The spectacle attracted hundreds of pilgrims and residents in the immediate vicinity. Captivated and perplexed by the voices coming from inside Aaron's house they heard not only Aramaic but each pilgrim's native language. Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans, they asked in utter amazement. How then is it that each of us hears them in his own native tongue? The assembled crowd was mystified. Even though many were devout Jews, fervent in their devotion to God, they were unable to discern the phenomenon's divine nature. And that may be true for some of us. Sometimes, as time is passing, we just don't quite understand the phenomenon, the divine nature of the divine phenomenon that we have experienced. So anyway, such is one fictional account or elaboration of the, uh, the Pentecost account. So let's look at decisive point number two in Samaria, where the Spirit is given to the mixed-race Samaritans. Somebody read the, these uh, verses for us, Acts 4, 8, 14 through 17.
1: Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit.
0: Thank you. Now let's look at the third decisive point, in Caesarea, where the Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. Somebody read Acts 10, 44 through 48 for us.
1: While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days.
0: Okay, thank you. Abraham Kuyper, an early 20th century Dutch theologian, and who was also the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. Can you imagine a theologian being the prime minister of a country or president of the United States? I'm not sure. Not not today. Um, But he had this to say about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out into the body of Christ, but only to quench the thirst of one part, the Jewish. Hence, there is an original outpouring in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and a supplementary outpouring in Caesarea for the Gentile part of the church. Both of the same nature, but each bearing its own special character. So that's a little bit about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and subsequent to Pentecost. Now let's take a look at the work of the Holy Spirit as he continues the Acts of Jesus. Uh, Ferguson writes that the post-Pentecost activity of the Spirit spreads through redemptive history like concentric ripples in a pool. His activity involves the transformation of the individual, the governing of the church and world, and bringing in the new age. So I'd like for us now to look at five what I call ripples of redemption. And these five are the anointing of the Apostle Paul with the Holy Spirit, Uh, The Holy Spirit growing the church, the Holy Spirit consecrating missionaries, the Holy Spirit overseeing the missionary work, and the Holy Spirit overseeing the welfare and growing of the church. And so let's begin with anointing the Apostle Paul. Somebody please read Acts 9, 17 through 18 for us. Thank you, Beth. And Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul,
1: the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized.
0: Thank you. Uh, So Paul's being filled with this Holy Spirit here is somewhat analogous to Jesus' experience of the Spirit uh, filling him at his baptism. Uh, Both reflect God's anointing to authorize them to execute the work to which they had been called. Now let's look at the Spirit's work in growing the church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Somebody read Acts 9.31 for us. Then the church
2: throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers.
0: Okay, thank you. Now let's move on to consecrating missionaries to the Gentiles, Acts 13:1 through3. Somebody read those verses for us?: Thank you, Patrick. I see you volunteered. now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Serene, Manain who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting Holy Spirit said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Great. Thank you. Now, overseeing the missionary work, Acts 16, 6, and 7. Somebody please read these two verses for us.
2: Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to.
0: There are a couple of interesting things in uh, this particular uh, set of uh, passages. One is, note that uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to as both the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus. Okay? So again, that's to reinforce what we talked about earlier, that the work that they do is They work with each other uh, as one, as part of the Trinity. The other thing that's interesting to note here is that the work of the Holy Spirit is strategic. The work of the Holy Spirit is strategic. Note that uh, Paul and his companions tried to go to a couple of places. The Spirit did not want them to go. And likewise, the Holy Spirit is still operating strategically today. And I suspect that some of us, if not all of us, have had experiences where we have struck out on our own, want to be precluded from doing what we thought we were going to do in God's name uh, or for the sake of the church because the Spirit wasn't leading us to do that. Uh, The Spirit may have turned around and prevented us from doing that. So it's important to note here, this is a good example, that the work of the Holy Spirit is strategic. And this brings us to the Spirit's overseeing the welfare and growth of the church. Somebody please read Acts 20, 27 through 29 for us. For I have not
2: hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, So here we see the Holy Spirit raising up individuals to oversee the welfare of the church. Uh, And again, he does that today. The word here, uh, overseers, is what we would uh, call elders. It's the same same Greek word, just translated differently, overseers and elders. And we also know that there are pastors, teachers, deacons, and others that the Holy Spirit raises up to help uh, oversee the welfare and the growth of the church. Ferguson says that in kind of you know wrapping up uh, this uh, the work of the Holy Spirit that we see here in the book of Acts he says the acts of the Apostles is not so much the acts of the Holy Spirit but the continuing acts of Jesus the Messiah through the Holy Spirit and that perspective is reflected in our outline uh, for this evening uh, in uh, in the the, the the work of the um, uh, uh person who created the course here for us where he says the exalted Jesus extends his kingdom to Jerusalem the exalted Jesus extends his kingdom in Judea and Samaria and the exalted Jesus extends his kingdom to the ends of the earth so here we see reflected that it is Jesus who is doing this he is continuing to do what his messianic role called him to do and he's doing it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So this brings us to group discussion number three. Uh, Discuss, uh, if you would, the importance of the Holy Spirit in the story of redemption. Discuss the importance of the Holy Spirit in the story of redemption. What's the Spirit's role here? How is he working? What's he doing? Why is he doing it? All these type of things, things you could discuss in the next several minutes.
2: Um, We talked about the, you know, in the great, you have a capital S and a capital R there, story of redemption, Um, you know, what you talked about already this evening, that from creation forward, you see the activity of the spirit moving the redemption story to its ultimate, um, you know, climax, which is the resurrection. Um, And then even to the end of the age, that, that the spirit is with us. And when Christ says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, um, what was the, somebody said the deposit, Um, is the spirit, you know, Jesus isn't here physically.
0: Okay. Very good. Thank you. What else? Anybody else? The Holy Spirit is the multiplier in the story of redemption through regeneration. Very good. What else? Anything else? Okay. Okay. Here's a key point that you can take away. In the story of redemption, it is the Holy Spirit through whom Jesus works to extend his kingdom throughout the world until his return by empowering Christians to be his witnesses. All right, we're going to conclude our time together this evening with this topic, the Holy Spirit and common grace. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on the doctrine of common grace? One one semi-hand went up, (laughs) semi, about this far. (laughs) Okay, Um, how many of you this The doctrine of common grace is a new term for you tonight. Stay tuned, Beth. (laughs) Why am I calling it common grace? Your hubby knows. (laughs) I'll share in just a minute. So for some of you, this is a new concept. And for the rest of you, how many of you have a pretty good understanding of what it really is? Besides Bob. so Bob, keep me honest, just so go through this all right no, <laughs> yeah, I know it's the Holy Spirit's job, <laughs> yeah um this is a um a topic that doesn't get much coverage doesn't get much play at all uh because in some respects, it's really, really difficult to wrap your head around it uh in in its breadth and in its depth uh in its manifestation. Uh, so, although we're going to spend some time talking about it here for the next few minutes, I'm not sure I'm going to do this topic really great justice, uh, but I hope, at least by the time we finish in the next you know, 10 minutes or so, you'll at least have an, uh, a cursory understanding that this doctrine exists and uh, what it is, purports to be, and how it differs from another kind of grace. So let me begin by posing uh, some questions. Have you ever asked yourself these or similar questions? How can we explain the comparatively orderly life in the world, seeing that the whole world lies under the curse of sin? How is it that the earth yields precious fruit in rich abundance and does not simply bring forth thorns and thistles? How can we account for it that sinful humanity still retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior? How do we explain the religious aspirations of people everywhere, even of those who did not come in contact with Christianity? How can the unregenerated still speak truth? How can they do good to others and lead outwardly virtuous lives? Have any of those ever crossed your mind? Those are some great questions. I know they crossed my mind on more than one occasion. Well, the answer is common grace. So we want to distinguish two types of grace. Theologically, there are two types of grace. There is special or saving grace, and there is common grace. Special grace or saving grace is the operation of the Holy Spirit that works in a spiritual, recreative way, renewing the whole nature of a person, and thus making the person able and willing to accept the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ and to produce spiritual fruits Common grace on the other hand is the general operation of the Holy Spirit whereby he without renewing the heart exercises such a moral influence on people through his general or special revelation that sin is restrained order is maintained in social life and civil righteousness is promoted Common grace is seen in all that God does to restrain the devastating influence and development of sin in the world and to maintain and enrich and develop the natural life of humankind in general and all individuals in particular. Common grace is granted to everyone. Although it does not pardon or purify fallen human nature, that's the role of special grace. It also does not affect the salvation of sinners. Again, that's the role of special grace or saving grace. Common grace distributes in varying degrees natural gifts and talents among people, and it showers untold blessings on humanity. Theologically, we speak of several means of grace. The first of these is the light of God's revelation. Now, just as we speak of two different kinds of grace, there are two different kinds of revelation, general and special. General revelation is a revelation by the Holy Spirit from God found in the beauty and laws of the natural world, the understanding of good and evil in human consciousness and God's providential governing of human affairs. Special revelation is a revelation by the Holy Spirit from God embodied in the Bible as the Word of God. So it is general revelation that operates in the realm of common grace. General revelation operates in the realm of common grace. This is alluded to by the Apostle Paul in the second chapter of Romans, verses 14 and 15. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. That's the light of God's revelation a means of grace. Another means of grace is human government. And I can hear you all thinking inside your minds, are you kidding me? (laughs) How is that even possible? That human government can be a means of common grace. Well, it can be under a particular caveat. There is a caveat. Now remember, uh, uh, God's general revelation uh, is given for the benefit of his creation. That's about the good things that he wants from his creation. And so when human government is formed in accordance with the principles of God's general revelation for the purpose of maintaining good order in society, human government is a means of common grace. Similarly, the same can be said for public opinion. Before I go there, let me just share with you what Paul says in Romans 13, 1 through 3 regarding human government. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. It's so hard for us to get our heads around the fact that all human government is ordained by God, even the governments that we cannot stand. Uh, From Nazism, Hamas, all the others, in his providence, God has ordained these. It is a mystery. It is beyond our understanding. And we would say to ourselves, if we were God, things would be different. Right? But that's not the way it is. So, public opinion can be a means of grace when it is formed under the influence of God's general revelation and in its expression reflects the principles of God's general revelation for the benefit of society and humanity. Otherwise, It is an influence for the bad. And some may even say public opinion, when it is purely godless, is an an instrument of evil. And then we come to this concept of punishments and rewards, which basically at a very high level is this. Many people will shun evil, not because they fear God, but because they've looked around and they see. People who are engaged in evil, bad things happen to them. Participating in evil is not in my best interest. I would rather spend my time in doing good and pursuing the good and doing good things because in them I know they have their own reward and more than likely they will serve my own interests. And that's how punishments and rewards kind of play out here in this realm of the means of grace. Let's wrap up by looking at some of the fruits of common grace. This first one, our natural lives. The death sentence that God imposed on humanity because of an Adam and Eve's disobedience was not carried out immediately. If it was, that would have been the end. There would have been no other story. God would have just wiped out humanity at that point, but he didn't do that. Okay, So the sentence, you shall surely die, was not fully executed. God's common grace maintains and prolongs the natural life to give people an opportunity to come to repentance. That is a fruit of common grace. Another is the restraint of sin. Through common grace, sin is restrained in the lives of individuals and society. And you're probably thinking, not everyone, not every society, and that's true. John Calvin, the 16th century French theologian said, if the Lord let every mind loose... To act unrestrained in its lusts, doubtless there is not a person who would not show that his or her nature is capable of all depravity. And we've all been inside our own heads that we know that to be true. The Canons of Dort, D-O-R-T. How many of you have read The Canons of Dort? I, <laughs> You want to recite them? the Canons of Dort, uh, formed in the 17th century. They are one of several confessional standards used in Reformed churches even around the world today. And uh, Article 4 of the Canons of Dort addresses this idea that there's a preservation of some kind of truth, morality, and religion in the world, which is attributed to common grace. And Article 4 reads in part, There is, to be sure a certain light of nature remaining in all people after the fall, by virtue of which they retain some notions about God, natural things, and the difference between what is moral and immoral, and demonstrate a certain eagerness for virtue and for good outward behavior. We see this reflected in Romans 1.20 where Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And common grace enables people to perform that which is right in civil or natural affairs, primarily good works in social relations and works that are in harmony with the principles of God's general revelation. And that brings us to natural blessings, uh, the abundant tokens of God's goodness. Psalm 145, 9 says, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45 says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So that's common grace. So I hope that enlightens you to a certain extent, answers some of your questions about why this, why that, but again, it's at a very high level. So I th- hope you found that beneficial. I want to wrap up with this quote from Louis Burkhoff, uh, who wrote this long treatise uh, called Systematic Theology, uh, which is like 800 pages thick. Uh, And he says this when it comes to kind of summing up the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, The Holy Spirit originates, maintains, develops, and guides the new life that is born from above, is nourished from above, and will be perfected above a life that is heavenly in principle, though lived on earth. By his special operation, the Holy Spirit overcomes and destroys the power of sin, renews humanity in the image of God, and enables people to render spiritual obedience to God, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and a spiritual leaven in every sphere of life. What questions do you have? We have a few minutes. It's like I said last time, I may not be able to answer them, but I'm asking. <laughs> we were talking uh, at our Zoom temple, one of the first questions about moral compass. Moral compass? Like, yeah. Compass. yeah. Many have moral compass. A moral compass. Yeah, a moral compass can be yeah a moral con- the moral compass can be attributed to the presence of common grace. I mean, and there are secular moralists out there who, if you look at their lives and Christian lives, there's like almost no difference in in what you see as far as their fruit goes. Now, there may be a difference as to their motivation as opposed to what the Christians' fruit is, and there probably should be. But yes, yeah, so common grace, uh, there's an element there that uh, you know leads to that particular you know concept of of having the moral conscience. Very good. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, yes? We talked at our table about like the
2: Spirit's opening of a person's heart to receive Jesus. And looking at your definitions of special grace versus common grace, you would put that as part of the salvation process in the
0: special safety. That 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 is correct. So it, uh, some refer to that as the wooing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and going back to uh, opening where I shared what happened to my wife and me, there was this wooing that went on. As we started attending this Bible study over a period of months, there was this slow you know, wooing. You know, we weren't Christians yet, but we were in the process of being regenerated. By way, I didn't use this phrase, and I don't know where it originated, but some people refer to the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven. Like he's after you until get you. Just just relentless, the hound of heaven. Uh, And somebody once said to him, the hound of heaven got you. I said, yeah, suppose he did. What else? Other questions? Comments? Sharing? Anything? Okie dokie. Going once, going twice. All right. let me pray for us. Father God, we are so amazed at what you have done for us. We are so grateful and thankful for all the provisions you have made for us in this life and in the life to come. We thank you that you provide your Holy Spirit to woo us, have brought us into yourself, and you have him working in our lives daily to keep us in your grace, to keep us in your love, to teach us, to direct us, to guide us, to fill us, to empower us, all for your glory and nothing less. May you continue your gracious outpouring and presence in our lives, that we may continue to be your witnesses and bring glory to your name through the power of your Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ the Messiah. Amen.